This morning's sermon comes from the book of Ephesians, chapter 5, verses 1 to 21. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. But there be no filthiness nor foolish talk nor crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible, for anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. There was a fascinating article last month in The Atlantic. If you're not familiar, that's a, a magazine that's been around for really since the 1850s. And it's a magazine that addresses various topics in our culture, you know, business, politics, technology, cultural concerns, all kinds of things. Last month, there was an article in The Atlantic about the recent decision or bill that was passed in the state of Utah declaring pornography as a public health crisis. Uh, it's a fascinating read. Uh, if, if you go home and Google Atlantic public health crisis, it'll come up. I encourage you to read it. It's, it's really fascinating to see something like uh, pornography, which is what Paul is getting to here with sexual immorality, one version of it, that has always been in the church uh, something important to talk about, but always something that's been very, looked at very differently than how the world sees it. And uh, interesting that this article uh, and what they, what they declared in Utah was, was not a spiritual health crisis, although we would say that that would apply, but a public health crisis. And it raises this issue of sexuality in our culture. Uh, and and what, what makes a follower of Christ, or what makes the church, or what makes Christianity distinct. That's what Paul is getting at here in this chapter. In fact, he, he has uh, about four statements, four verses in this chapter that, that go something like this. Don't do this, but do this. Don't do this, but do this. And it sets up 
what we're gonna talk about, these distinctions that make a follower of Christ. They're in verse four, where we're gonna see a, a distinction in obedience. Verse 17, a distinction in wisdom. In verse 18, a distinction in generosity. I want you to remember as we go into this where we're at in the book of Ephesians. This is important. This is an entire letter. Chapters one through three, we're all about what we would call the indicative, what God has done for us. The amazing work he's done for us to save us, we contributed nothing to it except our sin. Now in chapters four and on, he's getting into, okay, now what then should this new self, right, chapter four, look like? Old self to new self. What does the new self look like? What, what makes a follower of Christ dis distinct? And the reason I say this is important to understand the whole context is you can hear this and it can be a source of pride. This is no source of pride. Chapters one through three make that clear. This is a rejoicing in the distinction that God is making and doing in us as new creations of Christ. So what makes a follower of Christ distinct? What makes us walk as children of light? Right? Verse, verse eight, notice the light and darkness imagery in, in, this, in this section. Light and darkness are distinct. They can't coexist. They drive one another out. Paul is getting at what makes a follower of Christ distinct. So first, distinct in obedience. Verses three through 14, Paul addresses sin and disobedience. In verse six, sons of disobedience, verse 11, he says, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. He's describing deeds and actions and, and behaviors that are darkness, that are disobedient, that aren't in line with God's law, God's commands, the way God has designed life to be lived. And he gets specific. In chapter four, towards the end of chapter four, he describes uh, dishonesty, anger, stealing, bitterness, slander, malice. And then here in chapter five and verse three, he gets specific, but it's really around one topic, right? Sexual immorality, impurity, filthiness, foolish talk, crude joking. All of those are around sexual immorality. In fact, the word for sexual immorality in the Greek is porneia. It's where we get the word pornography. Impurity throughout the New Testament most often is talking about sexual immorality. And then the the filthiness, foolish talk, crude joking, all of that is the, the perverse talk and the joking that can come out of our mouths around that area of sexuality. So Paul is honing in here on a very specific type of sin and disobedience. And like I said earlier, it is, it is one of those sins, right, sexual immorality, that, that gets front and center attention especially world, church, and it goes one of two directions. Either the church takes a strong stance against it, publicly takes a strong stance against it and gets front and center attention, or the church gets relaxed and weak in its stance and starts to accommodate it. And then you see the headlines that way. Right? So there's two sides of the spectrum. Here's what never makes the headlines with sexual morality. What never makes the headlines, and yet what Paul is absolutely drilling into here in this passage, is the why. Why for centuries, from the first century that Paul is writing till now, has the church had a different sexual ethic than the culture? Why no sex before marriage? Why no adultery? Why no pornography? Why? And the key is in verse three, 
Paul makes a, a distinction between sexual immorality and purity and covetousness. You'll notice that he says, or covetousness. In other words, he moves from the, the acts of immorality to those deep inner cravings of the heart that bring forth those acts of immorality. Right? Covetousness is greed. It's that insatiable desire for more. And in this context, it's the insatiable desire for more even at the expense of someone else's body right? to satisfy deep, deep, deep desires of self. And so we're talking about here covetousness and greed. The difference, the key difference here between the churches or followers of Christ or the biblical view of sex and the worldly view of it is this. The culture, the world has reduced sexuality, has reduced sex to a means of getting physical pleasure. That's it. Now, listen, if, that's the, if that is the definition of sex, if that's it, then the practice of it is only gonna be about greed. You see how that works? Let me, let me speak to men here just for a second. Utah declares it a public health crisis. All right, we could argue what that means, but pornography is a billion dollar business in our land. Why? Why is it such an epidemic? I think one of the reasons is that we operate with an insufficient definition of sex. And here's what I mean by that. If you reduce sexuality and sex to just a means of physical pleasure, then you're defenseless against pornography. Right? Because at that point, men, I'll speak directly to you. At that point, your wife becomes an object to fulfill desires. And at that point, she is no different than the computer screen. You're defenseless. It's a, it's a wrong definition. It's an insufficient definition. Uh, one of my friends, he's a pastor of a, of a church, and he had a young couple come to his church, and they had been for a couple of weeks, a month or so, and uh, the wife had a meeting with my friend, the pastor, and explained how she had been uh, raped in her marriage. And she described how at her previous church, she went to the leadership there and explained this, and she was dismissed because they didn't understand how in the world that could happen in a marriage. But I hope you see now, if, if the operating definition is wrong, absolutely you can see how that happens. That sex becomes anti-relational. Anti-relational, objectification, something to get my needs met. And that's not how the Bible defines it. So let's, let's talk about how the Bible defines sex. It's very different. In fact, in the very beginning, when God created it, Instituted it, yes, he designed it for pleasure, absolutely. But the original purpose of sex was two becoming one, two becoming one flesh. It, it originally was this, this personal union between two people of, of intimacy, of oneness, that, that sex was a, a relational enterprise that was to bring two people to this amazing oneness, an expression of oneness. And for that reason, it is, in some ways, a covenant renewal ceremony between two people that have entered into a covenant called marriage. And that, that is God's design for it, is to be this, this renewal of a covenant that two people have made. 
And so it's very relational. And that's what distinguishes it from the culture and what the world has done to it. From a worldly view or a cultural view, sex is self-expression. In a biblical view, sex is self-giving. Self-giving. And that's what sets it apart. In fact, that's what, what Paul is describing here that sets apart and makes the distinction between obedience and disobedience if we want to fill it out even further than just the example Paul's giving. Right? It says, covetousness must not even be named, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Right? Here is that statement. I said there's a few of them in this passage of don't do this, but do this. Around this sexual immorality, Paul's saying, don't covet, but be thankful. Covetousness and thankfulness are extreme opposites, right? Covetousness says, I am discontent, and so I have to take whatever I can to fill self and find contentment. Thankfulness says, I am content with what God has given me, how God has given me himself through his spirit, and now I give towards someone else's good, towards someone else's well-being. You see the difference between covetousness and thankfulness, right? It's a deep issue of the heart. So where does the power come from? To walk in obedience in this specific area, but even broader with sin in general. Where does the power come from? To walk in obedience, to walk in the light as God has designed us to. Let's let's answer that question. We're talking about the power for obedience here. In verse eight, I want you to look first of all, this is really interesting how uh, Paul describes the source of disobedience ultimately. In verse eight, look what he says. For at one time, you were darkness. Now notice what he doesn't say there. He doesn't say at one time you did deeds of darkness or you were doing darkness. He says you were darkness. In verse 11, he picks up and says, don't, play any part in those unfruitful deeds of darkness, but here he says, you were darkness. We don't like to hear that. We, we're okay with good people that do bad things, or generally good people that make mistakes, or that make bad decisions, but to say bad people that make bad decisions, that's, a, that's offensive, and yet that's what the Bible teaches, that you and I inherit Adam's sin, which means that we inherit his dark, rebellious heart and that you're born into the world with a dark and a rebellious heart, one that is disobedient by very nature. Now, how in the world is this the starting point for obedience? 1983, uh, Mike Wallace on 60 Minutes interviewed Yehiel Denur. Yehiel Denur was a concentration camp survivor. And one of the architects of the Holocaust was a man by the name of Adolf Eichmann. Uh, And after World War II, Adolf Eichmann disappeared. They finally found him in 1961, and they put him on trial. And they brought forth witnesses to to speak against what he had done. And one of them was Yehiel Denur. And when he walked into the courtroom, and he looked and he saw Adolf Eichmann, he collapsed. He fainted, and the courtroom just went aghast, and it erupted, and there was 
chaos and what happened. So Mike Wallace is sitting there with Yehiel Denur, and he shows him the, the footage, the film of him walking into the courtroom and collapsing, and he says to him, what were you feeling? Why did you collapse? And of course, he was expecting some answer around you know, anger or fear or horrific memories, kind of PTSD type stuff. And what he heard was, Mike Wallace didn't have a category for it. I don't know that we have a category for it. Listen to what he said. When I walked in and I saw him, this is Yehiel Denur. When I walked in and I saw him, all at once I realized Eichmann was not the godlike army officer who had sent so many to their deaths. This Eichmann was an ordinary man. I was afraid about myself, said Denur. I saw that I am capable to do this. I am exactly like he. And I, Mike Wallace was undone. What do you do with that? You see, if, if you don't embrace or understand your identity as a sinner, capable of committing that sin that you find most heinous or most unacceptable, then you're not in a place to embrace the identity which is gonna produce obedience. You say, what is that identity? Look at the end of verse eight. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Again, look at what Paul says there. He doesn't say you were doing deeds of light. He'll get to that when he talks about the fruit of light is good, right, and true. But what he says here is you are light. And then here's the key phrase, which is Ephesians 1 through 3, in the Lord. That when you put your trust in Jesus Christ, you get his righteousness. He gives you his perfect life. He takes your imperfect life and you stand in him as light. That that's your identity. That's who you are. And now this whole business of distinction and obedience is living up, working into, becoming what you already are in Christ. Righteous in Jesus Christ. So how does that identity translate into obedience? You know, we, we, we can talk about identity, but the question is, okay, but how does that identity actually translate into obedience? Look at verses 13 and 14. It says, but when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Notice what's being said here. It's not just that the light of Christ exposes your sin. Yes, it clearly does that. But it says that the light actually then transforms you that the light actually transforms you and starts to make you more like the light. We have this, some of you may have this, but uh, we've got a, a glow-in-the-dark ball at home. And it's one of those balls that, that when you put it under a light and you take it out in the dark, it glows in the dark. So if you take this ball, just take it as it is, and you walk out at nighttime and you hold it up, it's dark. The ball has no power in and of itself to shine to be light. What do you have to do? You take it back inside, you stick it under a lamp, and you hold it there for several minutes. Right? Then you bring it outside and you put it up, and it shines. 
and it does for several minutes, five minutes or so, and then it starts to fade, and then what do you have to do? You have to bring it back inside, stick it under the lamp, and then bring it outside again, and it shines again. Unless you are meditating, reflecting, thinking actively about what Jesus has done for you, who you are in Christ, your identity because of his death and resurrection, spending time with him, letting him shine on you. Unless you are with some degree of regularity doing that, you have no power for obedience. Because the very things that give you power for obedience, affirmation, security, pleasure in Christ, once those are met in Christ, then your reasons for disobeying, which are to get those very same things, disappear. And so until you, you meditate on Christ and start to soak in who you are in him, and that affirmation and that security, that pleasure is found in him, then you'll find the ability, the strength, the power to obey because your reasons for disobedience start to disappear. What makes a follower of Christ distinct? Distinct in obedience. Second, distinct in wisdom. Distinct in wisdom. Look at verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Now, why does Paul introduce wisdom at this point? I mean, why doesn't he just say in verse 15, look carefully then how you walk, not in disobedience, but in obedience? Why does he introduce wisdom? Because Christianity is, is not just about obeying uh, the explicit moral behavioral rules or laws or commands of God. Much of Christianity is the much of life that is not addressed specifically by the moral commands or law of God. Let me give you an example. You've got two job opportunities before you. Which one do you take? Now, uh, assuming that one is not of a company that has just gross ethical issues, right? There's no, there's no Bible verse that says, you shall work for Merrill Lynch and not Florida Blue. Nor does God send the plane up in the sky and put it in skywriting, right? Or give you another example. Uh, should I, on Tuesday night, stay home with my wife or go out with my friends. Both are morally permissible. Both are even good, right? You need to love and nurture your wife. You gotta have friends, sisters in Christ, brothers in Christ for fellowship and encouragement. Both are good. How do you decide? See, the reality is, take the job opportunity example. Both are morally permissible. Nothing wrong with taking either job, yet one can be a wise decision and one can be an absolutely foolish decision. What we're talking about here is wisdom, wisdom. So what's the path of wisdom? That's verse 17, therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, right? Wisdom and foolishness, okay? What's, what is the path of wisdom? Wisdom flows out of an analysis of motives, while the Bible doesn't speak about every decision you'll have to make explicitly, the Bible does speak about motives. 
And so wisdom flows out of asking the why question. Take the example of two jobs, right? Which job should I take? Well, why do I want to take one job over the other? Maybe it's because you'll make a lot of money. You say, oh, that's it. There it is. That's the reason it's not a good reason. Well, not necessarily. There's nothing wrong with making money. Abraham, Job, they were wealthy men in the Bible. Question is, why do you want to make a lot of money? Now you start to get into motive. Nice car, bigger house, financial security, social status, whatever it may be. So what is the goal of wisdom? What's the goal? What is the right motive? What are the motives that should uh, empower you to make wise decisions? Look at verse 16. It says, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Best use of time because the days are evil. Now that, that phrase, days are evil, we see it in various forms throughout the New Testament. And what it's referring to are the, the end times, the last days before Jesus Christ returns. That Jesus is gonna return, his return is imminent, it could happen at any day, and so we live in the last days, or what's often called the, the evil days. This past week, if you, if you participated in community Bible reading, you would have read uh, 2 Peter chapter three. And in 2 Peter chapter three, there are uh, scoffers in the church. Peter's addressing the church. There are scoffers that are basically mocking and making fun of the Christians because they're waiting on Jesus to return. And they're scoffing and mocking him and saying, he's not coming back. God's not gonna fulfill his promise. And then Peter responds in this way. He says two things. He says, first of all, with the Lord, a thousand years is like a day and a day is like a thousand years. And then the second thing he says is this. He hasn't returned because, quote, he is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Now, if God delays the return of his son so that more people can come to know Christ, that his family would grow, then shouldn't that be the reason why we make the best use of our time or the how we make the best use of our time? For the sake of mission, for the sake of the Great Commission, to make disciples. You see that wisdom, that wisdom is making the best use of time because the days are evil, which means making the best use of time to fill and to fulfill the mission of God. My brother, he, this was years ago, he worked at a chem, chemical company in Kingsport, Tennessee, and they had him on the fast track. They were moving him up and finally got to the point, they said, uh, Greg, we have an offer you can't turn down. We're gonna move you to Los Angeles, California for two years, then we're gonna move you to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania for two years, and then possibly one more place for two years, and then finally we're gonna settle you in a city where you're gonna be a plant manager, overseeing an entire plant. And of course, that meant an incredible increase in salary, an incredible increase in power and position. And my brother turned it down. And the reason he turned it down is because it was not gonna be the best thing, a couple reasons. One, for his family. He had a toddler, he had a wife who was pregnant. They were in a good church. Uh, they were in a place where they were being fed. 
and his kids were being discipled through them and through the church, and they had relationships, and they were being discipled. They were growing. Uh, they were placed in a neighborhood, in a city that was, it was a great place for mission. You put all those factors together, which really fall under the Great Commission to make disciples of all nations. And they were in the middle of that. And because this would have ripped them out of that for a number of years and been unhealthy in wisdom, he said, no, the boss called him into his office. Uh, the boss had no category for this. No category. He called him in. He sat my brother down. He said, Greg, do you understand what you are deciding here? I just want to be clear. Right? He was convinced he had heard something wrong. And he, he laid in front of him the salary that he would make and that six years from now he would probably make. And the power and the position and all the perks, he said, look at this. Did, do you understand what is before you? And my brother, he looked him in the eye, he said, yes, sir, I do. No, thank you. You see, distinct in wisdom, his boss had no category for the wisdom that was driving my brother to make this decision. As a follower of Christ, as a child of light, that he was distinct in wisdom. What makes a follower of Christ distinct? Distinct in obedience and wisdom, and finally, in generosity, in generosity. Look at what's happened so far with disobedience, with lack of wisdom. What's been at the core of both of those? It's been selfishness, right? That our disobedience is driven by covetousness and greed, that our lack of wisdom is driven really by the same thing, right, to fill self. We're empty, we're discontent, and so we have to take and that produces disobedience, it produces a lack of wisdom, it produces foolishness, all of that. And so now Paul gets to the end of this section, and he says in verses 18 to 21, he talks about addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, about submitting to one another, serving one another. He's describing this life that is other-centered, that's not self-absorbed. Question is, what's the source of the generosity that Paul is talking about here? It's verse 18. It says, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Paul uses the example of alcohol here. And you know, alcohol is a depressant. And what that means is that alcohol depresses a part of the brain that makes you less aware of your problems. And that that's why we we can run to it. It's a way to escape the problems and the pain. The alcohol literally depresses that. Paul says, don't be filled with alcohol, but be filled with the Spirit. The Spirit does just the opposite of alcohol. Right? The Spirit doesn't make you less aware of your problems. The Holy Spirit makes you more aware of your resources by taking what Jesus Christ has done for you, the identity that you have in him, and making it so real to you that you don't care about your problems, right? The Spirit makes you aware of your resources. Uh, the Spirit makes you aware of the fact that you are rejoiced over and sung over and celebrated by the Father and by the Son, so much so that you don't care about the rejection that you got earlier in the day. That's what the Spirit does. Being filled 
by the Spirit. And the other thing here that's important to note, because we get a little bit wacky in our talk about the Spirit when we understand it this way. Being filled with the Spirit here does not mean getting more of the Spirit. It doesn't mean that you have a cup of the Spirit and now you get two cups of the Spirit. What it means here is being dominated or controlled by the Spirit. Right, that, that, that dominated by what the Spirit says of you, controlled by what the Spirit says of you, so that you no longer have to be a taker. Filled with the Spirit, content in the Spirit. Now I turn around and I'm a giver. You see that being filled with the Spirit or dominated or controlled by the Spirit turns you from a taker into a giver because you're filled to now give. One of my friends uh, recently started his own business and he's got a business partner that's gonna join him in the future. But right now, this future business partner is trying to unwind from his current work. Well, they were together in a meeting with a, uh, a Christian entrepreneur who was a good friend of, of my buddy and they were getting advice from this Christian entrepreneur and he's been successful at starting a business. Very successful, he's done a great job. And, and this Christian entrepreneur was offering my buddy all of these resources, lots of resources, and hey, this will help you, this will help you. And these were resources, if my friend was left to his own, would have to have paid lots of money for. Like, the, these were significant resources. They finished the meeting, and the future business partner looks at my friend and says, what's his angle? What's his angle? What's he trying to get out of this? What's he want in the future? And my friend said, nothing. He, he just loves me. He wants me to succeed. And his future business partner said, no, 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 no. It doesn't work that way. No, what is his angle? Why is he giving you all this stuff? And my friend once again said, he just loves me. He just loves me. He's being generous. He wants me to succeed. You see, there's a, there's a distinction in generosity that when you're filled with the Spirit, controlled, dominated by the Spirit, that you become a giver in such a way that the world, in their understanding of generosity, says, I have no category for this. And I would say that as you're filled with the Spirit, controlled, dominated by the Spirit, that you not only become distinct in generosity, but you become distinct in your obedience and you become distinct in your wisdom. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your spirit that transforms us from old self into new self. And thank you for these distinctions that you so clearly lay out this morning for us a picture of what it means to, to live out of the new self, the ways that we are distinct. And Father, in this passage, you hone in on not just sin in general, but sexual immorality. We see it all around us, we see it in our world, but it's not just in our world, we see it in this very room. There are, there are men and women in this room that are struggling deeply in this area. It's a source of incredible shame and guilt and a feeling of powerlessness 
Father, I pray that you would that you would redefine or define for us biblically what sex is and what sexuality is, that it is a relational enterprise, highly relational. And that you would rip out of us that insufficient definition, that anti-relational, objective, uh, self-gratification definition, that we would see it for the beautiful full picture that it is. And that we as children of light would walk in obedience, that you would give us the power by your spirit to be givers in this area, not takers. And we know that the only way that happens is Jesus, by sitting with you, by reflecting on what you tell of us and by being immersed in the truths of who we are in you. So Father, as we close in worship, as we proclaim that Jesus, you're the only good one, that you're the only powerful one, that you would fill us by your spirit, that we would be dominated and controlled by the spirit and find ourselves empowered as children of light, to walk in obedience and to walk in wisdom and to walk in generosity. We pray this all in Christ's name, amen.